Hey, good morning, everyone. Great to see you. Welcome to Union Chapel. Did you backstroke in? Man, that was a washout yesterday, right? We had community service day planned, but no way. So we've rescheduled for May 13th, so I hope if you signed up, you're able to recover and be with us in a couple of weeks on the 13th. So uh, we'll catch up. And, and what we can't do on the community service day, makeup day, we will do during serve week, which you've just been hearing about. So uh, we will make the impact in the community that we, um, that we plan for and pray for. So thanks for all of your support and help. We're continuing a series now that we've been on for a few weeks called You Asked For It, and you did. Now, this week's, uh, this week's subject was, uh, was a bit testy. It was challenging. It's an age-old question. What about suffering? All of you have thought about it, especially when you're in the midst of it. There's one thing that human beings know how to do, and that's suffer. We, I mean, we got that down, and we wonder about it. And so today we want to look at the Scripture and see what the Bible has to say about this important subject. And more importantly, we want to see that God has a way through these kinds of challenges in our life and gives us a hopeful future. So I hope you'll be encouraged by that. I've chosen as our text today from the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes is, uh, uh, if you have your Bibles, Psalm is right in the middle of your Bible. So if you open to the middle of your Bible, you'll find Psalms. And then right after Psalms is Proverbs, and right after the 31 chapters of Proverbs, there's Ecclesiastes. And so I'm going to read from Ecclesiastes chapter 4 today, the first 12 verses. This is from Solomon. And uh, Solomon, uh, as you read some of the things he wrote, you'll discover that he has good days and bad days. And this was a particularly melancholy day, apparently, for him when he wrote these words, and yet uh, we can learn much from it. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Ecclesiastes 4. If not, we'll project these words. Our custom is to stand to hear God's word, so as you're able, would you please? Ecclesiastes chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. Again, I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors, and they have no comforter. And I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive, but better than both is the one who has never been born, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. And I saw that all toil and all achievement spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. And a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. May God inspire and instruct today through his word. You may be seated. Thanks so much. One of the greatest uh, witnessing tools ever developed was by Campus Crusade for Christ, now known as Crew. their director, founder, Dr. Bill Bright. And that witnessing tool was called the Four Spiritual Laws. Many of you have seen this gospel track, maybe even used this track to help others. 
it is a, it is a phenomenal tool uh, that God has used in a very significant way. The first of the four spiritual laws in this tract is this. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. God loves you, has a wonderful plan for your life. Now, how many of you believe that? You believe it to be true. God loves you, do you believe that? And he has a wonderful plan for your life. Do you agree? I do too. I believe it. I think God's, God's love is great and his will for our lives is good. God's will is good. And so we embrace that. God has a wonderful plan and purpose for our lives. And so we live into that. And we try to have as much hope as we can muster in that. Now, having said that, we have to stop and ask. If that is true, God loves us and has a wonderful plan for our lives, why is it that so many things happen to us that are unfair, that are unjust, that lead to our suffering? Why is that? Why do bad things happen to good people? Or some ask it this way, why do bad or evil people seem to prosper? The ultimate question with regard to why isn't life fair, why so much suffering, is where is God in all of this? What is he up to? What's he doing? What's his purpose in all of it? Why doesn't he do something to correct it? I mean, he could. Why doesn't he? And these are important questions. On your outline, you'll see three main points. Roman numeral there, and then some subpoints underneath each. And let's try to unpack this a little bit if we can. The first uh, point that I want to make is the reality of suffering or injustice. The reality, that's the word you need, reality. Life is unfair. That's reality. Life is not fair. And the sooner you come to terms with that reality, the farther down the road you're going to go in your own emotional life and your own spiritual life. The further you are able to go down the road is in direct proportion with, with you coming to terms with the reality that life isn't fair. It's not. Not fair. In Ecclesiastes chapter 4, our text here from Solomon, he's actually giving us a snapshot of various life experiences that he's observed and then gives some commentary on it. I've noticed and I've observed and, and this is what it means to me. And so what we find in Ecclesiastes is Solomon unpacking some of these life moments and trying to give some interpretation. For example, he mentions in Ecclesiastes 8 that criminals go unpunished. That doesn't seem right. Why do people commit crimes? Because crime's not punished quickly enough, he writes, Ecclesiastes 8.11. And by the way, I have a theory about crime deterrence. I don't think the severity of punishment really is the deterrence that we're looking for. I, I think the certainty and the haste of punishment would probably do us better. But as you know, justice tends to grind slowly ahead. And unfortunately, in our culture, at least, people with more money tend to have the timing and severity of their punishment mitigated. Now, pe people tend to live in denial of that fact, but it's actually true, and so we need to em embrace it best we can. Ecclesiastes 3.16 says, I've noticed that throughout the whole earth, justice is giving way to crime, and even the police force is corrupt. So there's nothing new under the sun. I mean, these things happen, right? And cr criminals can go unpunished. A second thing that we learn about the reality of suffering and injustice is that the oppressed are not helped. Ecclesiastes 4.1, then I looked again at all the injustice that goes on in the world, and the oppressed were crying, and no one would help them. Their oppressors had power on their side. And what history 
teaches us about human beings is that human beings oppress one another, human beings persecute one another, human beings cause suffering in the lives of other human beings. This happens. And Solomon is simply making the observation. I see the oppressed, and they are going unhelped. Here's another reality that politicians are unethical. Shazam. Ecclesiastes, not all, some. Ecclesiastes 5.8, if I see a miscarriage of justice anywhere throughout the land, don't be surprised. Every official is under orders from higher up, and the higher up officials look up to their superiors, and so the matter is lost in red tape and bureaucracy. Just pass the buck. Ecclesiastes 10, 5 and 6, here's an injustice I've seen, Solomon reports, an injustice caused by rulers. He said stupid people are given positions of authority. That's in the Bible. I'm just glad I'm not one of them. A fourth reality of suffering and justice is that good people are unrewarded. Can you connect with that? Ecclesiastes 8.14, there's something else meaningless. Righteous men who get what the wicked deserve and wicked men who get what the righteous deserve. In other words, dishonest people are getting ahead and and honest people sometimes are left behind. You've noticed this. You've seen it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's the drug dealer in Bogota, Colombia who lives in a $15 million mansion and and from, from sight, from his villa, he can see field workers out in the field working 12 hours a day, seven days a week, and can barely scrape enough to feed their family. What's up with that? Solomon said the evil man gets the righteous man's reward and vice versa. He said, this is the way it seems to me. That's his observation. Then a fifth reality of this suffering is that capable people are unsuccessful. Maybe you've noticed this, Ecclesiastes 9.11, in this world, fast runners don't always win the races. Sometimes it's not how fast you run, but it's the breaks you get. It's who you know when you know them, you know, the opportunities that are there. The best team doesn't always win. The best athlete doesn't always get the gold medal. Sometimes she pulls a muscle, sometimes he gets tripped, doesn't win. The smartest people don't always have the most money. Give witness to to Floyd Mayweather, a prize fighter, around welterweight class, who has been paid over $100 million in his career for one fight, (laughs) making many times more than the President of the United States, exponentially more money for prize fighting than a school teacher or a police officer. It's crazy. That's crazy. The world, the world is upside down in a lot of ways. And so the reality of things is that life isn't fair. And if you don't understand this reality, you're going to run a great danger of becoming cynical or bitter or angry towards life. You have to come to terms with it, that we live in the corrupting internal influence of a world that is fallen and doesn't work well and has all kinds of unfair and unjust effects that lead to great suffering. And unless you come to terms with that, the reality of it, it can, it can cultivate in you very harmful attitudes and opinions and strongholds of bitterness and indifference and anger. So there's the reality of it. Now here's the second thing, and this really gets to the question that that was asked, why is there so much suffering in the world? And so 
Let me just say, number two, there is a reason for suffering or injustice. Why does God permit it? Why doesn't he just stop it? Well, here's one thought, and that is that God gives us the freedom to choose. He's made human beings as free moral agents, and we can choose to do whatever we want. Deuteronomy 11.26, I'm giving you the choice between a blessing and a curse. So choose you this day who you're going to follow, who you're going to serve. One of the reasons God doesn't step in and fix it all immediately in this life is because God has given us a choice. And he wants us to choose to love him, choose to serve him, not because we have to, but because we desire to, we want to. Let me put this statement on the screen for you. One of the things about you that is most like God is the ability to choose. Have you ever thought about that? This makes you more like God than any other part of the created order. Human beings are most like God when we are exercising the right to choose. To do right or to do wrong. To create or to destroy. To build up or to tear down. And these are choices that all of us make all the time. And this ability to choose is what makes you a human being, made in the image and likeness of God. So we live in a fallen world because God gave the first man and woman the power of choice. So one reason for suffering is the freedom that human beings have to choose. And people are choosing poorly and unwisely all the time. And the consequences of that leads to suffering. Here's another thing. Judgment is coming Another reason for suffering in the world is because it reminds us that judgment is coming. Ecclesiastes 3.17, it says, In due season, God will judge everything man does, both good and bad. Now, I want you to listen to me right now. Just because you're not facing judgment now in your life doesn't mean you won't. In fact, you will face judgment. You may be in the room today and say, Look, I live for myself. I'm a selfish person. I, I never pray and ask God what he wants me to do in my life because he may ask me to do something I don't want to do. And being a selfish person, I'm not going to do what God wants me to do. I'm going to do what I want to do, what satisfies me, what makes me happy. And so I'm just going to live my life. And by the way, it's working out fine for me. I have, so, I have good friends. I have a lot of neat stuff. Uh, my, my life is at peace. I get to take a nice vacation once in a while. Life is good. So don't tell me that God's judging me just because I don't go all in with Jesus. And so hear me again. Just because you're not judged now doesn't mean you won't be judged. Because every man and woman will stand before God one day and give an account for your life. The gift of God is, of your life will have to be accounted for. And isn't there something in all of us that actually wants that to be true? Isn't there something in all of us that we intuitively have this longing for, this desire for all the tangles and all the jumbles and all the relationship quagmires that, w- that we experience, that we want those to be sorted and straightened and unraveled. There's something about us that desires that. Well, good news. That's exactly what's going to happen. God is going to make everything crooked straight. God is going to bring every account to balance. See, if you, if, you, if you don't live for God and you live for yourself, what you live on right now is on credit. And so you are accruing debt, indebtedness in, your, in, the, in the account of your life. And those of us who know God and live for God and live in a sacrificial way, we're living on cash. 
Our accounts are current. We don't owe anything to anybody. But one day there's a final audit that's going to be conducted. And on that day, you don't want to be in the red. You, you, you don't want to have outstanding debt that day. You want to be current in your relationship with God. So if you know God and walk with him, this is the way to realize the wonderful grace of God in your life and to avoid this judgment that's coming. And then here's a third reason for suffering, and that is to show us we need a Savior, that we need. Some, someone has said that the greatest need in America right now is the need to know our need. The reason that people run to God, the reason that people reach for Jesus is because they have a deep sense of their need. No one in this room has ever come a, a closer to God, taken a step toward God, except in the context of an awareness of our need. I'm at deficit, I'm in lack, I'm at a weak, play, weak spot, I, I don't have what I need in order to live my life as well as I want or as honorably as I want, and so I'll take a step toward God because we know intuitively that God is the source of our strength. And so we run to God and we reach for Jesus in, in the context of our need. And perhaps it is true that the greatest need in America is the need to know our need, our need for God. Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, There's no one on earth who does what is right all the time and never sins. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And so all of us, at some point, will come to terms with the notion that I am not enough in of, a, in of myself. I am not sufficient in and of myself to manage all of the unique challenges of my life. I need help. I need a Savior. And as it turns out, we need a Savior right now, and we're going to need a Savior then. Are you got it? We're going to need a Savior initially. We're going to need a Savior eternally. A million years from now, we're going to need a Savior, just like we need one right now. And good news, God's provided one. His name is Jesus. And so one of the reasons for suffering is to remind us of our weakness and our need for someone strong. Yeah. So if we'll allow the injustices of life and submit to this process, we will recognize our need and reach for Jesus. Here's a, here's a fourth reason for suffering, and, and it's because pain can develop character. Pain can develop character. It's say, okay, here we go. Here, here he goes. The pastor's, now he's going to tell us we're going to be better for our suffering. That's exactly what I want to say. Here's, here's Romans 5.4. It says suffering produces character. Suffering produces character. Now, I don't like to hear this any more than you do. It's, it's hard times, though, that build character in our lives. Life's circumstances are always preparing us for something else. And so we have this opportunity to grow at the level of our character. The Apostle Paul wrote, and he said, look, the reason that I labor among you, and, and I will continue to do so, because I want Christ to be formed in you. The Bible also says, for whom he did foreknow, that you and me, God knew you, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his dear son. In other words, God's primary motive, his primary plan for you is to shape you into the image of Christ. He wants you to be formed at the level of your character, your personhood, who you essentially are to be like Jesus. And God will use everything available to help shape us into his image. And God will even use our hardships and God will use our suffering. 
to do that. When our boys were growing up, uh, this whole character development was a, was a big part of, of my worldview as a parent. And so I would, I, would, I would wrestle with the boys in the context of their disappointments and their, their pain and their suffering and, and try to help them understand the context of this and how wonderful God's capacity is to take things that have happened to us that are bad and negative and actually use them to build in us Christian virtue, real strength of character. And we talk about things like loyalty and, and diligence and courage and reverence, frugality, modesty, the Christian virtues, reflecting the character of Christ. We were on vacation one year when the boys were young. Aaron was about 12 and Isaac was about 6. And we were at the lake on vacation. It was a real hot morning. And we decided we'd go down to the park near where our house is and play a wiffle ball. So we took the wiffle ball stuff and we went down to the park. There was a little baseball field there. And we decided to have a two-on-two wiffle ball game. And so it was Aaron, who was 12, and his mother against Isaac, who was 6, and me. And we set up the rules. Uh, we laid out the, laid out the field it would be pitcher's hand, you know, that's the nomen, if you understand the nomenclature. So we would run the bases. We set up some markers out in the field. So if you hit the ball in the air over those markers, that was a home run. And we decided we would play seven innings. We flipped a coin to see who would be the home team because who got the last bat, that could be a critical component to this competition. And so game on. And it was hot, as I mentioned, and the sun was beating down, and we didn't really take any water with us, and so we quickly, you know, got hot and, and irritated. <laughs> and, the game, and the game was very intense. And as it, as it came down to the last innings, we were back and forth and back and forth, and, and the emotions were starting to run higher and higher, because that's just the way it is in our family. It's important to win. And so... <laughs> And so we got to the last innings, and it was becoming apparent that Isaac and I just weren't going to be able to catch up. We just, we just got down a few runs. We could not catch up. And, and um, Aaron and his mother seemed to be enjoying that, <laughs> really more than they should. And we came to the last out, and Isaac was at the end of his emotional rope. You, you can picture now a little six-year-old guy. He's all sweaty. You know, he's got that beads of sweat everywhere, and we've been playing in the dirt, and so he's got dirt all over his face, you know, kind of muddied up on his face. And now he's at the edge of it. And at the last out, and we had lost, uh, what made it worse at that point, really pushed Isaac over the edge, is, is the winning team actually began to trash talk us. Beth claims they were merely celebrating the win. Yeah, in-your-face celebration. Nobody likes a sore winner. So Isaac's at the, he's at the end of it. And so he goes racing over to his brother. And his eyes are all squinted. His face is even more red than it was before. 
and his teeth are clenched, and he is on the verge of exploding into tears. And he's, he's done. And he runs up to his brother, and he looks at him and he says, well, at least we've got character. <laughs> I looked at him and I said, mm, I'm not sure that's a character on display there. That, that may not be it. But this is what God does. In old-time photography, you know, the shutter opens and light comes in and makes a negative impression on the film. And that's what happens in our lives, isn't it? Stuff happens. Life happens. And it leaves a negative impression, and it hurts. And it makes us wonder, wonder why. Why this? Why me? Why now? But, of course, those are all the wrong questions. What we know about God and his capacity is that God is the redeemer God and he can take things that are negative in our lives and what we know in photography is with the right amount of chemicals and the right amount of, of light exposure, the negative then is transformed into a positive and that is precisely what God can do in your life and he will if we submit to the work, if we submit to the process, if we recognize that even in the midst of this this horrible moment, this terrible season of life where it just feels like and, and, and the experience of it is suffering and we don't like it and we're confused by it, if we will submit that season to God's good grace in our lives, he will actually use that to shape us into the kind of people he wants us to be. It's an amazing, hopeful notion. Now, what we know is that the person who does not allow God into their lives has no perspective on this kind of truth. Their world doesn't work this way. But for the Christian person, this is the opportunity that God will take to shape us into the image of Christ. And it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. Now that leads me to the last point I want to make. It's Roman numeral three. It's on your outline. You'll want to write this down. How do you respond? Responding to suffering. Responding to injustice. Well, first of all, I think in order to respond well to suffering in our lives, you have to accept that life is unfair. You have to accept it. Now, that's easier said than done. That's easy to say. That's easy to talk about. That's easy to, for the preacher to say. You have to accept that life's unfair. But as it turns out, you do. You've got to come to terms with that. Until you come to terms with this reality, you'll be asking the wrong questions throughout your whole life. The wrong questions are, why is this happening to me? What did I do to deserve this? I thought I was doing the right thing, and then something bad happened to me. Why is this going on? But it's the wrong question. You'll also run the risk of becoming cynical and embittered, angry toward the world. Beth and I had a good friend, and we were friends with this guy for many, many years, over 30 years. And we would see him from time to time, and we were constantly trying to influence him for Christ. He said, come, come and be a Christian. He was always hesitant, always reluctant. The last time we spoke with him together, this is what he said, and I quote, you know, things happen to you in life, and you just come to the point where you become, and he hesitated, and he said out loud, what is the word? And Beth then said for him out loud, cynical? And he said, that's it. You become Cynical. And then he said, and I quote, you just don't care anymore. I 
I preached his funeral not long ago. Do you know people like this? They don't like people. They hate God and anyone who represents God. Do you know someone like this? Some, something happens and then assumptions are made. God doesn't care about me. God doesn't care about my family. Christianity is a waste of time. The Bible is not true. Prayer doesn't work. The people of God cannot be trusted. How could a loving God allow this to happen to me? And people live in that. And they're overwhelmed by it. The fact is we live in a fallen world that has yet to be thoroughly redeemed. It's been judiciously redeemed. God has made a way for us. Jesus has paid the price for our sins. We have an opportunity, all of us, at any moment to receive the wonderful grace and gift of God to be forgiven of our sins and made right with God and in right standing with, to have peace. And that's available to us. But we've not been fully redeemed. We haven't seen it all yet. We, we've not been experientially redeemed, just technically re redeemed. But let me just remind you, full redemption is coming. Full, full redemption, full freedom is coming. And so we hang on and we wait for that. Look at John chapter 16, verse 33. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. Any questions? Any debate? In this world, you will have tribulation. But, he said, be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. Glory to God that he's overcome for us, and we can live in that reality. So how you respond to suffering and unfairness and injustice in your life will be a great factor in the well-being of your life, the perspective that you go through life. So you've got you've to accept that life is unfair. And then here's the second thing. How do, how do we respond to suffering? Well, how about this? Do the right thing anyway. Do the right thing anyway. You still have a choice. Well, my life, I'm, I'm a total victim. Nothing good has ever happened to me. Okay, well, you're still a free moral agent. God's given you the freedom to choose. Now, you need to choose how you're going to deal with that. Every last single one of us have the freedom to choose whatever attitude we are going to, we are going to embrace every day, every second of every day. You get to choose how you're going to respond to all the crap you have to put up with. And you can choose. You can choose to be sour. You can choose to be cynical. You can choose to be bitter. You can choose to give up. And a lot of people do. Even Christian people do. Or you can choose to live and see a hopeful future and know the best is yet to come and that God really does love you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Because it's true. That is absolutely true. So you choose. Do the right thing anyway. When you summarize all of the words of Solomon in the, in, the, in the Old Testament, it comes down to this thing. You can summarize his worldview this way. He, always, he would say to us, have fun, do good. Have fun, do good. Have fun, do good. Any questions? I mean, there it is. Do some good. There are, there are people oppressed everywhere. Help them. Do the right thing anyway. And have some fun along the way. 
Resist the temptation to become cynical or resentful. Resist the temptation to go along with the crowd, which says, well, there's always going to be people who are hurting. There's always going to be the poor. There's always going to be people oppressed. Just the way it is, there really isn't anything we can do. It just leads to more frustration. The more you help them, the more frustrated you get because they just, you know, they never go away. They're always there. So why not just go live a selfish life? Wait a minute. No. I'm going to do good. I'm going to help the oppressed. I'm going to attempt to meet their needs. I'm going to promote justice. I'm going to do the right thing. I'm going to do the honest thing. I'm going to do the decent thing. I'm going to do the God-honoring thing. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to have fun. I'm going to do good. Your bad attitude isn't going to drag me down. And this is just a point of reference, friends. Don't let the weakness in another human being keep you from God's best in your life. Don't do it. Rise above all of that. It's Dr. King's admonition to, to judge one another on the content of our character and not on superficialities. Look for that. Do the right thing anyway. And then here's the last thought I want to make, and that is pray for God's reward. Pray for God's reward and wait for it patiently. It's coming. Look at 2 Corinthians 4.17. This is from the Phyllis translation. These temporary troubles are winning for us a permanent reward out of all proportion to our pain. Or these momentary light afflictions are producing in us an eternal weight of glory. As it turns out, God is taking all of the suffering that we experience and he is putting it together into goodness and also producing for us an eternal weight of glory. Amazing. Just an amazing thought. So how am I going to respond to an unjust world? Fallen from God's best. I'm going to wait for God's reward because his reward is coming. In a few weeks, I get to preach at Asbury Seminary in Estes Chapel during a chapel session. It's a great honor, in case you don't have sensitivity, it's a great honor to be invited to preach at Estes Chapel. And, and I get to do that in a couple of weeks. And I'm going to preach from Hebrews 12. And one of the phrases there is that for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. Now, that's quite a juxtaposition uh, position of thoughts, isn't it? For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. What? What? You tell me what's joyful about that. That's what motivated him? For the joy set before him? Must have been. What do we learn from that? It learns that Jesus, when he was going through the passion and he was suffering the rejection and the ridicule and the, and the judgment and, and even the death, horrible death on a cross, he was looking past the next five minutes. He was looking past the next five hours. He was looking past all of that. And he was seeing out beyond that horizon. And he was seeing a day when all of us would be assembled with him in an eternal kingdom that was under his rulership, where all the crying and suffering and pain would be done away with, all the tears would be wiped from every eye, and that he would be the just ruler, and he would rule with a rod of iron, and justice will roll down like the waters. In that moment, we're going to live in a place and in an environment and in a, in a culture that we long for, that we, that, we, that we desire more than anything else. 
And so we're reminded then, these momentary light afflictions, the suffering that we go through today and in this life, these are momentary and they are light compared to the incredible weight of glory that is in front of us. It's not a great promise. So here's the, here's the admonition in the midst of suffering. Hang on. Hang on. Endure hardship. The Bible says that you can't enter the kingdom of God without going through many hardships. That you can't taste, you can't taste of resurrection power until you also taste in the fellowship of his sufferings. This is the way. This is the Jesus way. And so we find ourselves as the people of God in a wonderful position with the opportunity to wait patiently for the reward that is surely to come. Did you get it? Now the answer is I got it. Did you get it? All right, let's pray. Lord, we pause now to thank you for your word, to thank you for the illumination that it gives us. Lord, we all connect very easily and very well with injustice and unfairness and suffering. We get it. Our lives are full of it. And so help us to connect with the truth that you are the one who gives us a choice and that we can choose to follow you and submit to the work you're doing in us. And in all of these ways that you are working to redeem even the horrible and bad things that happen to us, redeem them into qualities in our own lives and influence in the lives of others, that you are making a name for yourself and indeed you are preparing a place for all of us to go one day. And so God, help us to wait for your reward. And in all these ways, God, we need your strength and help and grace. We admit today we're needy, we're weak. Boy, it's so easy for us to lose our way. So help us, God, by your grace, we pray in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Would you stand with us?
Remember the after party, if you're new or relatively new, stop by, say hello, take two minutes, love to greet you. Here's the blessing. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. And may the Lord lift up his countenance upon you, give you his peace. Be at peace, friends, both now and forever. Amen. Have a great day.